Again, if you're uh, perhaps leading some new convert into the paths of spiritual life, there is one thing you must tell them time and time again. Again, there's all manner of manuals, how to grow as a young, a young believer. Do this and do that and do the other thing. But there's one thing that must be emphasized. If they are to grow in spiritual health, they must have a clear and accurate knowledge of Christ Jesus. They must know who he is. They must understand the nature of his person and his work. There is no spiritual vitality where there is a lack of knowledge of Christ Jesus. That's true in terms of saving faith. Our faith is in Christ Jesus. And if the just shall live by faith, then that faith must be accurate and it must be grounded upon a proper knowledge of Christ Jesus. And so where do we get that? Well, again, if you're counseling a new believer, you're going to tell them to find out about Christ in the Scriptures. To see him in all of the Word. And so we get Christ from the Word, from the Old Testament. The predictions and the types and the shadows. We see Christ in all the Scriptures. And I said to you at the end of last year, it was my aim uh, this year to try to see Christ each and every day in my devotions and the Scriptures. So far, so good. It's not difficult. He is in all the scriptures. If your eyes are open to see Christ and your mind is alert to consider where he is, you will find Christ each and every day in the word of God. He is in all of the scriptures. He's clearly shown, of course, in the epistles. The New Testament epistles, they they go to such detail in expounding and explaining the nature of his person and his work. But it's in the gospels we see Christ in action. And remember the general principle in the word of God. That out of the heart flow the issues of life. And so when we see Christ acting, we see his heart. You want to know your saviour? Look at what he does in the gospel. Look at how he acts with his disciples, with sinners. And here, of course, with those who were his own in John chapter 13. Again, if I can just take a moment or two to give you some idea of structure here again, it's important to understand this passage. John is, is not rambling. He is very precise and accurate in his delivering of these uh, blessed narratives. And so chapter 13, verse 1, is really a heading for the entire section, all the way to the end of chapter 20. Again, I'm not going through the details regarding the structure of John's gospel, but this verse 1 of chapter 13 is a heading for the entire section. He loves his own unto the end, namely unto the completion of his earthly ministry, and dying, rising, and ascending for his people. His love is persistent despite the cost. And so verse 1 heads off the entire section. Then when you get to verse number 2, verses 2 through 4, 2 and 3 really, serve as a, as a preamble for the foot washing. We're going to get to the point where he's, he's going to wash their feet, but there's an introductory comment or two that John makes about supper being ended and the devil entering Judas Iscariot and Jesus knowing certain things. And so again, if I can, if I can encourage you when you're reading verse 2 through to 4, What's the main verb in action here? Well, it is, if I remove all the subsidiary clauses, you will see the main thing, what you're left with is, Jesus riseth from supper. Everything else fits around that. So what's the, if you like, if you were to summarize this, 
Well, Jesus rises from supper and then he takes his garments and, and washes the disciples' feet. And so what comes before him rising is really introducing or if you like, setting a foundation for that action. Why is that action significant in light of these previous verses? Again, with, with that in mind, we'll come back to that. You'll see a couple other things that I should, I should comment upon and, and consider with you. There is a challenge here again regarding the language used and the timing, verse number two. And supper being ended. Again, the use of the word ended here is certainly challenging. Again, it's fine, we're not going to move on without discussing it, but we're not going to take too much time with it either. Again, there are two general ideas when you come to explain this. Certainly, verse 26 gives the idea that supper is not ended. There is still the salt to be dipped and given to Judas Iscariot in verse 26. And so, in what sense is supper ended? Well, one idea is that there are two, if you like, two phases to the meal in Jewish culture at this time. And so, this is the end of the first phase prior to the ongoing formal taking of the Passover supper. And again, some hold that. There are others who, who recognize the verb ended here is really it's a very general word. And James and Fawcett and Brown simply say this, supper being ended, rather being prepared, being served, or going on. And so they say the idea here is actually, well, unless you hold to a two-supper view, it's more than likely that the word ended is not the most helpful in this particular text. So again, you have a couple of choices there, uh, but it is plain that there's an ongoing participation in meal. The Lord rises from supper, that is, he rises from his seat, and then he returns again uh, to that seat back in verse, or on in verse number 12, and was set down again. So it's all manner of things. The other matter that certainly confuses some people is that there are various views regarding the supper mentioned here in verse number 2. What it is not is the Lord's supper. It's not suggesting the Lord has instituted his supper. That happens later on. And so it's a supper, it may well and likely is referring to the Passover supper, or some see it as referring to a supper some days earlier in the home of Simon the leper. Again, there are various views. I'm just mentioning these to you. If you're reading various books and commentaries on John, there are some, and they see this initial supper in John 13 as referring to an earlier supper in the home of Simon the leper in Bethany. Again, it doesn't sit with me. And I, I'm along with J.C. Ryle in this. Uh, I certainly favor the ideas referring to the Passover supper here at this time. You take the idea again, verse number 26, of the dipping of the sop and giving it to Judas. And you compare that, you turn back to Matthew uh, chapter 26, and you'll see, uh, again, very similar language in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 26 and verse number 23. And you have Matthew's account of the institution of the Lord's Supper in verse 23. And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. And again, you have that of Judas in verse 25 and then verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it. And so it seems to my mind that Judas leaves the room before the provision of the Passover or the, of, the, of the provision of the Lord's Supper in verse 26 of Matthew. But either way, I think it makes it more likely that what's happening in John 13 is all happening around the Passover Supper. And Christ is coming 
and showing his love for the disciples in the context of him fulfilling the types and shadows of Passover. Regardless, again, I just mentioned these things. I know you read other books, and again, we should be aware there are various views on some of these issues. But regardless of all that, the feet washing occurs in the context of this ongoing preparation and participation of a meal. They are reclined around the table. It is likely a very private function. There is no servant there to wash the feet of the disciples. And it seems to be the case, and this is just conjecture, that the disciples are too proud to do it. Back in Luke 22, again in a similar context, verse 24 it says, And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. It's in that context that the Lord comes and serves. That's why, verse 16, the servant is not greater than his Lord. The Lord is teaching the disciples here a lesson regarding servant leadership and what it is to humble himself and to serve his own people. So we're seeing all of these details, all of these factors, and yet at the heart of it all, all those things are important. But ultimately we need to see this as a display again of Christ's love. He loved them unto the end. Each step in these chapters is another way in which Christ's love for his disciples is revealed. And so he loves them by leaving the glory and splendor of heaven to come and serve his people. That's pictured in him rising from supper and taking the form of a servant. And so this display of Christ's love should be noted, first of all, in a time for conflict. Again, we've got to look at these verses that are the preamble to the event of washing the disciples' feet. And so this love that Christ has comes, and supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now We understand that this act of the devil influencing in some way the heart of Judas occurs before the upper room. Again, you'll see that back in Luke. Back in Luke 22, and the verse number 3, it says, verse 1, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas named Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve, and he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad, and they gave him money. Then, verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. So already, in Judas's heart, is the activity of Satan moving Judas to act in such a way as to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. So why then? Why does John mention it here? John's not doing this accidentally. It's not just filling the page and trying to build up the word count. No, he's making a very, very important point. It's an additional time stamp, if you like, to these events. The Passover is coming. Jesus knows his hour is coming. And by the way, the devil is at work. Satan is scheming. Satan is working in such a way as to expedite the death of Jesus of Nazareth. There are various 
actors in their roles at this time. The rulers are jealous and angry. They, they want to find a way to put Jesus to death. God is sovereign in it all. We see that in Acts chapter 2 and Acts 4. God is working in and through the actions of, of evil men. But the devil is also active. All of these things are working together in the counsel of God's will. God is sovereign even when the devil is acting. The devil is acting at this point. Why? Well, very simply. Genesis 3.15 must come to pass. I believe with all my heart that this reference to the devil in the context of Christ's love is emphasizing the fact that as Christ loves his own, he does so in the context of spiritual warfare and conflict. You know Genesis 3. I'll turn back there just in case you don't. And again, for those young folks who, again, if you don't know Genesis 3 very well, uh, you need to know that verse. It's, again, this foundational verse in all the scriptures. And in part of the fall of man, Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, these are words to, to Satan, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The Lord has told Satan, there's going to be conflict. And he has a role in bruising the heel of the seed of the woman. Now here again, it is difficult. The Lord understands Satan's activity. And he says as much in Luke 22, this is your hour and the power of darkness. He knows he's engaging in spiritual conflict. And yet it seems to be the case that the devil is ignorant of the outcome of his actions. Again, here I, I'm walking tentatively. Genesis 3.15 makes it clear that the Lord instructed Satan regarding this future conflict. And yet it seems to me that Satan, not being omniscient, did not understand that putting Christ to death through Judas' betrayal would bring about his own defeat. I'm just walking cautiously. But what I do see here in John chapter 13 is this sense of contrast. Satan entered the heart of Judas, acting in such a way that will bring his ultimate downfall and ruin. But in contrast to that, verse number three, Jesus knowing. And I think the implication is that Satan is acting in the moment, but Jesus knows the big picture. Christ Jesus is superior than Satan. And this conflict is not a conflict between good and evil and equal forces. And I wonder who's going to win. No, the conflict is between Christ who will crush the serpent's heads. And he shall indeed have the victory. The Lord knows the outcome of all of these things. And so we're seeing here that as Christ loves his own, he does so in the climate of spiritual conflict. The devil is active and busy. We also see that Christ loves his own with certain truths that give him confidence in the conflict. Again, verse number three then comes to highlight these these truths, and there are, there are three that are stated. Jesus knowing. 
And that active, that, that participle verb, Jesus knowing, he riseth from supper. I mean, we've got to think of the context and the, the connection here between what the Lord knows and then his subsequent actions. Well, he knows three things. He knows, first of all, that the Father had given all things into his hands. It's a reference to the Lord's authority. Not his essential authority. Let me explain that. As the Son of God, all things belong to God. God is over and sovereign all things. The cattle in the thousand hills, all things are the Lord's. And what's been described here is what the Father has done in appointing his Son to take on humanity and act as our mediator, as our Messiah. And so John highlights that several times. There are times when he even says the Father is greater than I. This this sense in which he understands he's working under the authority of the Father in his commission as the God-man, as the Messiah, as the mediator. And so the reference here is certainly to authority. The Father has given all things into his hands, but he's been given these things as the Messiah. Again, we've got to not speculate. I don't want to speculate as to what is meant here. I want you to turn back, please, to Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to show you this. This this concept recurs in Matthew and also in John. And when you see how it recurs, you get an idea of what's involved in this. What does the Lord mean? What does John mean when he refers to Jesus knew that all things were given into his hands? Well, Matthew 11, verse number 27. The Lord himself speaking here, conscious of this reality, says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father. What's he referring to here? Well, in the previous verses, you know the words here, Woe unto Chorazin and Bethsaida, they are those who have not repented, though they've seen many mighty works. And they're going to be held accountable for their actions in rejecting Christ, despite such privileges. And the Lord, he responds in prayer in verse 25. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. And then he continues. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And so the sense, I believe, of the authority of Christ is his ability to dispense grace according to his good pleasure. That the Son of God on earth has now the the authority of the Father, despite the activity of the devil, he has the authority to bind the strong man and deliver his goods Christ has all authority to redeem souls and reveal the Father to those whom he loves. You get the similar idea, and I'm, I'm kind of skipping chronologically here, but you get a similar idea in Matthew chapter 28. And of course, you, you know this is the, uh, the prelude to the Great Commission. And again, this has a similar concept. And so what you're seeing here, when the, the Father delivering all things into the, the Son's hands, there's, there, are, there are phases of this. It begins in the Lord's ministry and is culminated in his death and resurrection. And as such, 
He is then exalted and given that name above every name. And verse, six, verse 18 of Matthew 28. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. And so because of his authority, he then commissions the disciples to go and evangelize the world because he possesses all authority. And again, I come back to the sense here. John is making the point. The devil is active. But Christ rules. Christ is all authority. And the devil cannot hinder Jesus from redeeming precious souls. He can't do it. Because Christ has all authority. And you get that very same idea over in John's gospel then. Look at John chapter 3 to begin with. John chapter 3 and the verse number 35. Again, this testimony, John the Baptist here. He that hath received his testimony hath said to his seed that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him, referring to Christ. He is the Spirit without measure. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. And again, what's the context? It's in the context of those that believe on the Son hath everlasting life. And those that believe not shall not see life. So keep that in mind. What's it mean? The Father has given all things into his hands. Again, it's in the context of salvation. So John 5 and the verse 26. John 5 and the verse 26. For as the Father of life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Here again is this act of judgment that the Father gives the Son the, the authority to redeem souls and also to hide the gospel from souls, even through parables, as he does in Matthew chapter 13. This work of judgment belongs to the Son. One last reference, John 17 then. Again, in our context, John 17 verse 2. The Lord is speaking here in his prayer, Father, the artist, come, glorify thy Son. And then verse number 2, Ask, thou hast given him power, Authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That's it. All things are given into his hand. He has supreme authority. There's no one and nothing in this earth that can hinder or thwart the purpose of Christ Jesus. That's the great hope. And you know what? It's still true today. Satan comes, enters Judas's heart, and do you know what? That will not thwart the authority of Christ Jesus. It will not hinder from Christ from saving his own people. It won't hinder him from applying the gospel to their lives. He has all things in his hand. And aren't you glad that's true? Nothing in this world, no foreign forces, no raging rulers, Nothing can stop Christ from saving his own. Go ye therefore into every nation. Young people, this must be the foundation of your desire to serve God. Whatever your calling may be in life, wherever you may go, if you feel the call of God to go to some far off country, 
you will go because you know that Christ has all things in his hands. He has all authority, all power. Therefore, you can go with great confidence. What else does Christ know? Well, he knows he comes from God. And these things are connected. We're going to see that uh, before we close again. He understands that he's come from God. The idea here is he's being sent from God. It's a, yet another proof text of the divinity and the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. He comes from God. Again, one who is co-eternal and co with the Father. He comes from God. Look back at John chapter 6 and the verse number 38. John 6 and the verse number 38. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And what is that will? He says, verse number 39, And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. He comes from God to do the Father's will. The Father gives him all authority to save his own. And he will save his own. He comes from God with that divine authority and that divine commission. So again, I'm showing you that Christ is aware of his role. He knows his authority. He knows he comes from God. And as it says here, Jesus knowing, and he went to God. Again, John is reflecting back. Christ has already left. John writes this in this portion of scripture. Christ has already gone to God. But again, you're seeing the, the completion of the Lord's work. John 14, verse number 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. He's going to the Father. Verse number 28 of John 14. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. He, he goes to the Father. Verse number 28. For my Father is greater than I. Again, all of this language is referring to the role of Christ Jesus he knew why he was on this earth. He understood his commission and his authority. And he knew his work would succeed. He knew he would go to the Father. What does that mean? That though he would die, he would rise again. Though he would die, he would die in such a way that his work would be successful and have the seal of the Father. And in so doing, he would triumph over the devil. These verses, you read them so quickly, they are so packed full with biblical doctrine. Jesus is aware of who he is. He's aware of the union of his natures. He is aware of his divine nature. All of this is, is coming together. He knows that he comes from God and goes to God. He knows the authority he has. How does that then link to verse number four? Well, apart, it emphasizes the extent of Christ's condescension. The things that are true in verse number three, yet Despite all of those things, who is the one that takes the towel and girds himself? It is our Savior, our servant Savior, the one who has all authority, not just in that room, but in the universe. And he's the one who will come as servant. But beyond that, not only does it emphasize his condescension, it also surely supports him in its confidence Matthew Henry says this, 
It may come in as that which supported him under his sufferings and carried him cheerfully through this sharp encounter. Judas was now betraying him and he knew it and knew what would be the consequence of it. Yet knowing also that he came from God and went to God, he did not draw back but went on cheerfully. That's true as well. What is undergirding the Lord in his humanity as he goes to face the devil on the cross, if you like, as he goes to triumph over the devil on the cross? It is the confidence of his success. He shall indeed see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Look up, dear child of God. Don't be so downcast. Don't think the church is done for and is going to fail and be ruined in this world. Oh, great persecution may come, but Christ will lose none. He has all things. He went free, came from God and goes to God. He triumphs in his work. These are truths that give Christ confidence and should give us confidence also. But thirdly, please note the task that then displays this condescension. It is a task that indicates Christ's loving intent to save in the midst of this conflict. The devil is coming, conflict's ensuing. Christ indeed is going to die. He knows these things and yet he is prepared to serve in a way that will save his own. It's an act of service. Look at the details, verse number four. He riseth from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girds himself. And after that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with he was girded. And the grammar is given to us in such a way that we're meant to see the living reality here. Each step in the process is described in such detail that it does not simply say, and he washed their feet. It describes what he did in great detail. The dusty roads they would have walked on to come to that room. They then brought people into the house and the host was required to arrange a washing of the feet of those who were his guests. But as we see here, very likely it's a very private gathering and there is no such servant and no such washing And yet Christ is prepared to take on the role of the lowliest servant. This is about as low an act as you can do as a servant in this culture. To wash their defeat, wash their feet individually and personally. It is that that provokes Peter's question. Lord, dost thou wash my feet? In the context of the disciples Arguing about who is greatest, the Lord shows them true servant leadership, a humble and a helpful heart. I don't want to moralize this passage. But I wonder, are you willing to serve your brothers and sisters in the house of God here? How low will you go to show love towards those your Christ's? The Lord comes to this point. It's an act of service, but it is also a parable of salvation. And and here's the the point of all of this. You you, you get Peter's question. The act of the Lord is, is such a profound act of humility that Peter says, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And then the Lord answers, If I wash thee not, verse 8, thou hast no part with me. And Peter says, Well then, then wash my hands and head also. The Lord says in verse number 10, He that is washed 
needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit or every part. And ye are clean, but not all, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. There's nothing here to suggest that the Lord did not wash Judas's feet. So the reference here and what the Lord is saying regarding cleaning and the cleansing of the disciples is he's making a point that his action has spiritual application. He's behaving like an Old Testament prophet, like a Jeremiah or Ezekiel who, who, who did living enactments of spiritual truths. The Lord is now, he's doing a parable in action. He's, he's demonstrating the nature of salvation. And when you look closely at verse number 10, there are two different words for wash in verse number 10 and two different forms in the grammar. And this is very significant. Verse 10, the Lord says, He that is washed. And the word used there grammatically is a once and for all act of washing the entire body. If you like, bathing the entire person once and for all. And those that are washed in that way, they need simply to wash their feet. And the word for washing, uh, the second word for washing, verse number 10, does not refer to washing the whole body, but washing one particular part of the body, namely the feet. And the grammar of this is an action that must be done continually. An ongoing action. What's the Lord teaching here? Well, he's teaching the nature of his work. Christ, as our servant saviour, cleanses us fully by his work on the cross. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. That's Christ's work. And those who are Christ, those who are part of Christ, verse number eight, they are indeed clean. Judas isn't. And what's the difference? He is not one of Christ's. He's the son of perdition. But those who are Christ. They are cleansed. They trust Christ and Christ's blood avails to cleanse them from every sin. That's the great hope of the gospel. But those who know such cleansing need the ongoing work of the Savior in that regular continual work of sanctification. Not by blood if you like, but by water. As it says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse number 26 that he may sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. What you're seeing here is the work of sanctification. You see, Christ, our servant saviour, condescends to save us by dying for us and destroying the devil in that death. But he also condescends to sanctify us. You're not perfect, are you? Your feet are still dirty. And the Lord is still pleased to serve you in his compassion each and every day. Yeah, we see here the Lord and his love. It's a love unto the end. It's a love unto the completion of his ministry. But it's also an ongoing love in his children. Including the task of humbly washing their feet. That's what makes verse number 8 stand out? For the Lord says to Peter, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Sanctification is necessary. Not 
to make us suitable. But to indicate that we belong to Christ. You see we are saved and go to heaven because of the cleansing of Christ's precious blood. We're justified. There is therefore now no condemnation. Sanctification doesn't make us more ready for heaven in that sense. You don't see it that way. But what sanctification proves is that you belong to Christ. For those who are cleansed by Christ's blood are then willing to be sanctified by the word day by day. You see, those who are part of Christ are glad to receive his ongoing washing. Peter understands that. Not perfectly. Verse 7 makes it clear. What I do now, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. It's, it's a lovely verse, but it's dealing the point that Peter's knowledge is slow. There's a progress in his knowledge. The Lord is emphasizing to Peter, you must continue to let me sanctify you and to cleanse you day by day. Are you willing to be sanctified? Do you have a submissive heart to the word of Christ today? Are you willing to come to your Bible reading tomorrow morning and see something in the Word that convicts you of sin and causes you to stop in your tracks and say, I need to change what I'm doing here? I fear that some believers, as they grow in maturity and become older in the faith, they begin to look at the Word of God just to confirm what they're already doing. And there's not that submissive spirit to be challenged by the Word of God. And in essence, we come to church to prove that we already know these things. And we come to church to be told we're very good people and doing a good job and keep it up. And we don't come with that humble spirit to say, Lord, wash my feet today. Show me the word of God today. Show me where I need to grow in likeness to Christ Jesus today. We're like Peter, thou shalt never wash my feet. May God help us to have a spirit willing to be sanctified by the washing of water and the word. You see, this is a profound passage. It certainly details the movements of the Son of God as our Savior. Philippians 2 is happening here in picture form. He who was equal with the Father, who thought not robbery with God, he comes and humbles himself and takes the form of a servant to cleanse sinners to show us the way of salvation is the way of service and humiliation. Do you want to know who Christ is? He's the one that's willing to wash the disciples' feet. Here's the Lord's humble heart of service. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you think he'll turn you away? If you come to him in humble faith and confessing your sins and recognizing your need of Christ. The heart of Christ is a heart of service. He's willing and able to love. Does Christ love? Yes, Christ love. How much does he love? This much. And it is this love that motivates the Son of God to be our Savior. It is love for his own that drives him into the battle. Again, we look at the theology of Christ and we consider all the various things that move him to die for our sins and we say, yes, does he desire the defeat of Satan? Of course he does. 
Does he have a burden for the glory of God? Of course he does. But this passage, verse number one, he loved his own unto the end. The passage emphasizes that his love for his own is what moves his heart to humble himself in service and to die upon the cross for our sins. Christ was willing to die for your sins. He loved you in dying for your sins. Have the highest thoughts of Christ today. Delight in his love for your soul. Easily said. And yet for some sensitive children of God, they find it so very difficult to allow Christ to wash their feet. He is the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. Let's close, please, in prayer. Let's look to the Lord again uh, for his help. And we're simply scratching the surface of these things. There are some tremendously profound doctrines in these verses. And may the Lord encourage you to dig into the word and to know more of Christ in these verses. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We pray to help us to consider it carefully, to meditate upon it. May we delight, O Lord, in the love of Christ for our souls. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Heavenly Father, we bless thee again for the word. Dismiss us now with your favor. May we walk in your fear. Grant us the help of the Spirit of God in these things. As we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.